right, welcome to The Briefing Room. I'm ABC's Devin Dwyer in Washington. Great to have you with us on this Tuesday. Mary Alice Parks, our Deputy Political Director here, our Justice Reporter Jack Dotta. Here's some breaking news on the justice front. Just a little while ago, we received uh, a new court filing in the Paul Manafort case. That's the former ch uh, campaign chairman of Donald, President Donald Trump, who, of course, has been indicted, pleaded guilty. Uh, the... Um, Mueller team, of course, has now accused him of violating that cooperation agreement. And in some of these documents, Jack, we're learning some of the specifics about what they allege he has not cooperated and, in fact, misled them on. Right. And there's some new nuggets in here. So it, to back up a little bit, the, the Manafort lawyers had to make a filing as of midnight last night. <clears throat> they made their filing to the court. And this is a response to the accusations that they breached their agreement with the government. And... In it, though, there's several redacted paragraphs, meaning paragraphs that are blacked out. You're not supposed to be able to see them. Uh, but they didn't do a good job of redacting them. And so enterprising folks on the Internet quickly learned that, hey, you can actually see what the redacted things are supposed to say. And in it, we're learning some new things about what the special counsel is accusing Manafort of doing. And one of those things, they're accusing him of lying about giving 2016 polling data to a guy named Konstantin Kalimnik. Now, this is a guy uh, who is suspected to be connected to Russian intelligence, former GRU, Russian intelligence. Uh, uh, and and so this doesn't look good. It's, it's basically somebody who worked as the campaign chairman giving polling data to a guy who's suspected of being potentially a Russian intelligence asset. And we should say that one of the key questions we don't know at this time is whether uh, Paul Manafort uh, sort of knew that this figure was connected to Russian intelligence. That's one big question, what the purpose of allegedly giving this information uh, to him was. But Mary Alice, if this is true, this would be another big glaring indication of potential collusion between a top official, indeed the man leading the Trump campaign, and someone in the Russian government. It's different than taking a meeting. This would be evidence of working together and sharing information. I think you're exactly right to point out how much we just don't know, but that is what congressional Democrats are gonna keep pouring into, what clearly the special counsel is continuing to pour into, it really gets at the scope of the questions that they're looking into. And, and you're right, it would be a huge step forward if it wasn't just meetings, but it was sharing information. So again, if you're just joining us, this breaking news coming from the Washington Post, first confirmed by ABC News and these new court filings today, some very interesting information coming out by accident, in effect, right. uh, related to the specifics of Paul Manafort. And Jack, before we let you go, what's next in the Manafort case? What What, what is next for him? Where do things stand for those keeping track of Well, there's going to be some back and forth about his his breach and you know then eventually he's going to get sentenced for a very long time it would appear because he's been in breach of his uh, agreement and he's already been convicted of course in the virginia guilty, uh, so. in in pleaded guilty in the virginia case as well so thank you very much for that as that's well, coming in meanwhile here in washington we're in day 18 of the federal government shutdown all eyes tonight on the white house the president set to make his first oval office address to the country in prime time that's a, a very significant milestone for him and his presidency also a sign of how serious the situation has become and mary ellis top democrats prepared to make a big response as well i've been struck by just how you 
united Democrats seem on this issue. Even day 18, when there's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure from uh, average Americans across the country impacted by this uh, shutdown, we're still seeing Democrats sticking by their leaders. I talked to some Democrats today that on Capitol Hill that said they've never been prouder of Nancy Pelosi, and they're impressed by how everyone is working together. That's pretty remarkable and unusual for Democrats, uh, and, and we're seeing both sides totally dug in. And as both sides are dug in, we've been hearing your stories, many of them shared with us at ABCnews.com, about how the shutdown is affecting you. It is starting to spread. People are really beginning to feel the pain. Just in the past 24 hours, the nation's governors, Republicans and Democrats, have written a bipartisan, united letter to the White House and to Congress demanding the shutdown to end. Take a look. This is a very significant uh, development coming from governors, many of them supportive of President Trump, supportive of congressional Democrats as well. We urge you to find a compromise. A federal government shutdown is a failure in governments and a weight on our economy uh, and the American people. Mary Alice, a number of states have begun to close uh, national parks. We know the Joshua Tree National Park, we've just learned, will close on Thursday. Um, and workers are right. protesting in the streets in Philadelphia today as well. It's a huge reminder that this is not a D.C. problem. It's not something that's only impacting people in the Beltway. We have federal employees in prisons and EPA offices, the IRS offices all around the country, and there's ripple effects. When they don't get paychecks, it means they don't spend money. It means they're worried about paying rent. The governors are really trying to sound the alarm here that this has huge ramifications for the country. And as workers start to speak out even more, we've been listening to a whole bunch of them. Here's uh, a little taste of some of what we've heard from workers, federal workers, who are working without pay. Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's not a lot that I can do. I'm locked out of my job. I want to go to work. I want to do my job. And I'm being prevented to do from doing that. You're able to work. You made a commitment to this job. And, you know, right now, your bosses, which is the president, is not fulfilling their part of it. You, and that's something that's really, you know, um, I struggle with that. I'm someone who is, you know, recently separated, going through a divorce. I have all of these other things that are going on in my life, you know, and now I have to worry about not getting a check. I will be honest, I, I actually Google Uber and Lyft. And I, what I Google was like, hey, is it safe? You know, kind of an accident around. Should I do this? When I don't have multi-million dollars, you know, in the bank. I don't have family that has it. I don't have friends that have the kind of resources you can do where you can actually decide not to work and it's going to be okay. People should honor their commitment as the president, um, Congress, to be able to open up the government so we can go to work because we made a commitment to America. I just feel like that should be honored. A commitment to America, obviously America's commitment to workers. We heard yesterday from Native Americans who have that commitment hanging in the balance as well. Uh, as all eyes are on the Oval Office, let's go now to the White House to hear what the president is going to say tonight. Jordan Phelps is our White House reporter there. She's been talking to officials. Uh, Jordan, they don't want to get ahead of the president, I know, but what have you been able to piece together about uh, what the president plans to tell the country tonight? Yeah, Devin, we expect the president to make his case directly to a broad audience of the American people that there is a crisis at the southern border, and he's going to try 
to inject new urgency into this. We know that the president in recent days has been weighing potentially declaring a national emergency as a way that he could kind of do an end run around Congress to go ahead and build that wall he so desires without their approval. Uh, Devin, right now the sense is that the president is not going to make that declaration tonight, although, you know, the president has been known to make surprises. Uh, we expect the president tonight to make that case that we really have been hearing him make for days. Uh, but the argument here from the White House and why this matters is that they say most Americans maybe haven't been paying as close attention, and the president wants to speak directly to those people to make his case. Yeah, and it's a tool the president has yet to use, uh, burning right. a lot of political capital on this. An Oval Office primetime address is a really big deal. Uh, let's go to Capitol Hill now. Uh, ben Siegel covers uh, the Congress up there. Ben, uh, uh, Democrats wanted to get in on this. They wanted to get in on uh, this action as well in primetime. And we understand that uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and uh, Chuck Schumer, Senate uh, Minority Leader, also going to address the country tonight. Yeah, we're going to see Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi side by side today after the president's speech uh, from the Oval Office. Democrats really putting forward a united front, sort of to Mary Alice's point about the party being more unified than ever. Um, and they see uh, their position as a winning one. We spoke to uh, the majority leader of the House today, Steny Hoyer, who said that uh, they want to take it to the American people this week. The House is, is going to be voting on individual spending bills to reopen the government and keep it separate from the border security issue. And they, and they think it's a winning argument to take to the people and show them uh, which party will vote for these bills, which party wants to reopen the government. Thank you, Ben. So much of the country tonight will be watching to see what's new and what the president has said, Mary Alice. Uh, he's been giving this message about the wall over and over and over again. I think um, people are going to be paying close attention to what the president has to say about the facts. Our Jonathan Carl, chief White House correspondent, spoke with the vice president this morning about those facts and challenged him on some of the things we've been hearing coming out of the West Wing. Take a listen. How can the president be... How can his word be trusted on this when he has said so many things that are just not true about this crisis? He said that Barack Obama has a 10-foot wall built around his house here in Washington. You know that's not true. He said that some of his predecessors told, uh, told him that they wanted to build a wall, but all four living presidents have now put out statements saying that they never had any such conversation with the president. And then you saw uh, Sarah Sanders say that nearly 4,000 uh, terrorists come into the country every year, and, and, you know, that's not true either. How, how can the American people trust the president when he says this is a crisis, when he says things over and over again that aren't true? Well, look, the American people aren't as concerned about the political debate as they are concerned about what's really happening at the border. And that you know, it's pretty unprecedented to have a president that's willing to play loose with the facts. It's been a hallmark of his administration. At times, it seems like he's even making up numbers. And that's been the case with this last few weeks as well. And he's been called out on it, uh, probably more than ever before. I think we're seeing administration officials even having a hard time repeating some of those facts and figures that the president has liked. I've watched cable news all day talk about a credibility crisis for this president. I know that tonight we're going to have a team of fact-checkers 
working to try to bring some uh, reliable numbers to the table in the conversation during the president's speech. Yeah, we have a big team assembled, many of us relying on experts outside of this building. One of those is Bill Galston. He joins us now. Uh, Bill, great to see you. Senior Brookings Institute fellow, constitutional expert, former Clinton administration domestic policy adv advisor. Bill, I wanted to dig in a little deeper with you on this concept of being able to declare a national emergency, something uh, Jordan told us the president could do tonight. We know he's interested in doing it. Um, does he have the legal authority to do that, and what impact would it have, do you think? Well, when I first heard about this possibility, I said, no way. And then as I began looking into it, uh, I concluded that the president may have the legal authority to do this. Uh, the Congress has given presidents more than 100 different kinds of statutory authority to declare emergencies. One of them has to do with the military construction budget. And if the president declares an emergency, he may be able to divert funds that haven't been obligated for other purposes for the wall. This will be a disputed legal question, but he has some chance of prevailing even in court. And just to be clear on that, Bill, I think that's a point lost on a lot of this discussion. Um, if an emergency is declared and he takes federal funds to build a wall, he would be taking funds away from other programs, right? This wouldn't simply be tapping the government's piggy bank. Certainly not. He doesn't have the authority to do that. The Constitution makes that clear. Uh, but there is a specific law passed in 1982 that does allow, under emergency circumstances, for the, re the reprogramming of military construction funds. Now, if, if the Department of Defense has already told a contractor that uh, there is an obligation to pay the contractor for a particular purpose, that money can't be pulled back. But according to my information, there are billions of dollars in the Department of Defense budget that haven't yet been committed in that way, and a court might allow the president to take those funds for purposes of building the wall. So, Bill, in your uh, expert view, before we let you go, uh, any legal challenges to this move, which uh, have been widely, would be widely expected, uh, you don't think it's a slam dunk that the president would lose? Uh, look, the Congress, according to uh, an act called the National Emergency Act, has an opportunity to disapprove of the president's action, uh, and if two-thirds of both houses disapprove of it, then he can't go forward. That's the first line of defense against this. The second line of defense is the courts. Uh, but as I said, uh, this is largely untested in the courts, and they'll be breaking some new ground one way or the other when they take this issue up. All right, going to be fascinating to see, Bill, if he pulls the trigger tonight. Bill Galston with Brookings Institute, thank you so much, sir, for coming on and sharing your expertise. We'll be back with you. Come back. Uh, moving on now, it's the eighth anniversary, believe it or not, of the tragic shooting in Tucson, Arizona, that left uh, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords uh, severely wounded, six others killed. Uh, today, Democrats fulfilling a promise up on Capitol Hill introduced some background check legislation. I want to bring in now Peter Ambler. He's the executive director uh, of the Giffords organization. Joining us from Capitol Hill has sponsored this legislation. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, pretty big moment here uh, in this movement that began eight years ago um, after that shooting. Uh, to see this legislation be unveiled, to see a Democratic uh, uh, majority now in the House. Uh, what does this bill do? What do you think its chances are? Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big day. 
Um, what we're seeing here reflected is the, uh, um, the, the, the sh shifts in uh, the politics of guns. Um, it is a, um, uh, uh, the, sorry, I have, um, yes, the, the politics around guns have shifted. We uh, today are seeing uh, the House Democrats introduce a universal background checks bill. It uh, is going to, what, what it does is it ensures that every single uh, firearms transaction gets a background checks. It, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting some feedback here, but um, it's, a, it's a bill that's supported by over 90% of Americans, Democrats, Republicans. The bill today is uh, sponsored by both Democrats and Republicans. It is the product of the 2018 midterms when uh, we went head to head with the NRA and congressional districts across the country. We beat dozens of NRA backed incumbents and, ele and elected in their place, um, you know, champions for gun safety. And it's those people who are gonna be introducing this bill today on the eighth anniversary of the Tucson shooting. And uh, hopefully we'll see it passed in the next couple months. Yeah, Peter, sorry about the feedback there, but th thanks for laying that out. Obviously, a very significant moment. Uh, it does have bipartisan support. Comprehensive background checks, polls, uh, as you know, show most people support them. Let's go mm -hmm. back to Ben Siegel, who's up on Capitol Hill, tracking the politics of this. Ben, uh, big moment for Democrats, as Peter was saying, to get this introduced. But w give us a sense of, of, of where things stand uh, in terms of passage, something like well, this. Well, there's a lot of optimism around this because, uh, as you mentioned, this is the first time Democrats have mm -hmm. controlled the House uh, since that shooting, since uh, former Congresswoman Giffords was shot uh, eight years ago. So there's a lot of excitement about moving this through the House um, within the first 100 days of this new Congress, is what I was told. And there are some Republicans supporting this bill in the House, but it's a very nominal group. It's, it's some of the same co-sponsors of legislation uh, who are backing some of these bills in previous uh, sessions of Congress when Republican leaders would not move on this. So the bottom line is that we'll definitely see this pass through the House. But in the Senate, this still phases an upward uh, battle as long as uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, controls the floor and, and appears unwilling to, uh, to bring this up for a vote. Yeah, so, so tough odds in, in the Senate, of course, Mary Alice, but uh, as Ben was saying, a lot of optimism. This is certainly a big step forward for gun safety advocates. Yeah, and this last year, between the, the advocacy brought by those students in Parkland and the number of moms that were running in 2018, as Peter said, we saw a real shift in the politics around gun control. We saw people that were willing to say they were voting on this issue and this issue alone, and they were going to go to the mat for it. I think you're exactly right. This is Democrats fulfilling a promise and really laying out some of their priorities and what a democratic government would look like. You know, Peter, I know you've been with the Congresswoman for a long time since she was a member of Congress on Capitol Hill. I wonder if you can talk to us just about what today in this bill means on a personal level for you and the staff and, and Gabby Giffords. Uh, it's been a long journey for her. Thanks, Mary Alice. Absolutely. It was, um, you know, like you said, eight years ago today that I woke up, got a call that, you know, my boss had been shot. Uh, that six of her constituents had been murdered, including a colleague of mine, Gabe Zimmerman. And uh, you know, t today we're here in Washington with Gabby, who will be joining Speaker Pelosi and Congressman Mike Thompson introduce the bill. And we'll be joined by dozens of other survivors of gun violence from across the country too. And it's really their courage. It's a testament to their courage to speak out, to step up and say that, you know, our loss uh, might've been tragic, but we can't take that back. But what we can do 
is we can make sure that you know other people don't experience the same tragedies that we do. And the Democrats, Republicans, gun owners, non-gun owners, moms, veterans, doctors, the army of gun safety advocates that's emerged over the past few years, um, they are following the lead of those courageous survivors that were with uh, on Capitol Hill here today. And um, that's why eight years since the shooting, six years since Gabby Mark and I started this organization, that this bill introduction means so much, because it means that the politics have changed, that the voices of survivors mean more than the voices of NRA lobbyists. All right, but Peter Ambler, Executive Director of the Giffords Organization. Thanks so much, Peter, for taking the time to come on with us, sharing your views. I uh, look forward to having you back. Good luck this afternoon. Uh, shifting gears now, finally today, uh, some turning to some head-spinning developments out of the, over the president's decision to pull American soldiers out of Syria. This is a story that we began following uh, uh, a couple weeks or so ago, the president making that abrupt decision, Mary Alice. And since then, it seems like there's been a lot of confusion as to what is happening, when it's happening, and what the president wants. It's increasingly clear that there's not a clear plan and that the plan is shifting. You know, we've had major resignations over this uh, language and proposals from the White House, a huge shift in the administration because the decision from the president was so controversial. And yet questions now this week whether we're going to backtrack entirely, especially as allies in the region uh, were really nervous by what the president had to say as far as a really rapid exit plan. And let's go to the Pentagon now for the latest. Our Elizabeth McLaughlin is tracking uh, the reporting on Syria out of there. Elizabeth, you know, this, this, this whole head-spinning nature of this story was set off by National Security Advisor John Bolton sort of saying over the weekend that this is now, this withdrawal is now conditional. Uh, and yet then today we have the Turkish president weighing in on his phone call with the president. What's going on here? Hey, Devin. So I'm having a little bit trouble hearing that question, um, but it really is a moment where you're seeing the U.S. and Turkey at odds in the region. And this is coming as Ambassador Bolton was just rebuffed uh, by President Erdogan, who refused a meeting with him. And one of the areas that Mary Alice was just speaking to is the confusion over the timeline for a withdrawal. So we had originally heard from the White House that this could happen within 30 days. Then we heard from officials here at the Department of Defense that it could be longer, possibly several months. There were reports about a 120-day timeline. And now what you're hearing from Bolton, as well as Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, is that there is no timeline because this is going to be conditions based. And so what that means is that they're talking about making sure ISIS has truly been defeated inside Syria and also that there are protections for the Kurds. And that's a huge issue between the U.S. and Turkey. Those Kurds have been allies for the U.S. They've been valuable partners in the fight against ISIS. And for Turkey, they view them as, as terrorists and they've uh, threatened to target them many times in northern Syria. So what's going to be key here is what happens to those Kurds and will there be assurances? Uh, Erdogan really blasted Bolton uh, publicly today in, in a speech saying that those uh, those assurances are, don't exist and that they are prepared to go into Turkey when the U.S. withdraws. Oh, it sure does seem like we're back at square one. 2,000 U.S. soldiers inside Syria, Elizabeth, and yet the president said ISIS has been defeated uh, and he had guarantees from the Turks. But again, that all seems off now. We're back at where we started. 
I'm so sorry, Devin. I'm actually not able to hear you at all, all right, right no now. No problem, Elizabeth. Oh, hold on. McLaughlin I think you're coming Pentagon. back. Uh, we will uh, we'll let you go because we're short on time, Elizabeth. Thanks so much. But Mary Alice, uh, point being that this this policy has seemed to go full circle, uh, as so many people have pointed out, including uh, the, the national security advisor. And it really remains to be seen. American lives hanging in the balance. Two thousand troops over there. Are they coming home? The president had said very quickly. Now, not so sure. And Republicans on Capitol Hill really putting the pressure on the White House to figure this out and get it under control. Uh, some of the president's biggest supporters up there really worried about this one. And Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, resigning over this very decision uh, as well. Fascinating one. We'll keep tabs on that at abcnews.com and the ABC News app, of course. We hope you join us tonight. Live special streaming coverage of the president's address to the nation and the Democratic response here at 9 p.m. Eastern time uh, on all the ABC News devices. You can watch us on your iPhone. You can watch us on your iPad, uh, your uh, Android phone. Of course, we're on Hulu, Roku, Facebook, Twitter. You can find us everywhere. You're the Roku whole list. <laughs> Mary Alice will be here. Whole team will be here. Join us then. I'm Devin Dwyer, Mary Alice Parks. We'll see you next time.